Good evening. I'm Axis. I'm Moner. And you're listening to The Late Night, a horror podcast. Happy July, everyone. And we'll leave it at that. <laughs> Axis and I agreed that after June's dark mix, we take a break from the goth horror and switch to comedy horror. To that end, tonight we'll be watching Chelsea Stardust's Satanic Panic from 2019, starring Haley Griffith, Rebecca Romaine, and Arden Myron. And we'll be following that with McGee's The Babysitter from 2017, starring Judah Lewis, Samara Weaving, and Bella Thorne. We'll be right back after the tone. Stay tuned. So, Satanic Panic 2019. Uh... Yeah, based based on a screenplay by novelist Grady Hendrix and adapted from a story created by Hendrix and Ted Geoghegan, uh, who's also a publicist and wrote another uh, great horror film, We Are Still Here, in 2015, I'd like to note that this is a Fangoria production. Uh, going back a step, if you don't know who Grady Hendrix is, please pause this podcast and click the link we put in the comments for Pseudopod number 76. Tales from the White Street Society by Grady Hendrix. Why am I doing that? I want you to know and experience how talented that writer is. Um, Actress Haley Griffith plays Samantha, Sam, Kraft, and she's doing her first day working as a pizza delivery girl. Uh, To really complete her look, she's riding around in a green Vespa. No, wait, I'm sorry, a relaxed green Vespa. Uh, relax green because uh, I vomited mint ice cream doesn't read well on this on a metallic spray can man your vendetta against mint man Um, the job isn't netting her a ton of tips on on the first day Uh, and as somebody who was a pizza delivery boy I can attest that that's totally true Um, So she jumps at an offer to cover another delivery in a rich part of town called Mill Basin. Uh, Even though this was all filmed in Dallas, Texas, uh, is probably based upon the actual town of Mill Basin in Brooklyn, New York, which is notable in American history for being one of the first lands stolen from the Lenape back in the late 1600s. It's also the place where Captain William Kidd supposedly stored his treasure. In case you're wondering why a New York story would be shot in Texas, that would be because the cost of living is lower in Dallas, and there's a lot of filmmakers there right now, so the texts are amazing. Yeah, God, you want to try to film something in New York City? Good luck. Good fucking luck. Enjoy the permitting (laughs) and four square feet of space on a sidewalk with no no blockades. You can film a closet in New York for, Mm -hmm. you know, a couple million. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, however... You know, the delivery recipient, Gary Neuemeyer, also stiffs uh, Sam on a tip. Frustrated and uh, needing some gas money, Sam enters uh, the Neuemeyer's mansion to demand a tip. And inside, she inadvertently interrupts the secret gathering of a coven led by Donica Ross, played by Rebecca Romain. Uh, the coven, which includes Gary Neuemeyer, who's played by Michael Polish, who was in uh, Hellraiser Bloodline. Uh, and his wife, Gypsy, played by Arden Myron, who's worked all across the industry. Um, it's also noted, It's also good to note that the other people in the coven include A.J. Bowen, Crispian from Your Next, and Jeff Daniel Phillips, uh, the new Herman Munster in Rob Zombie's The Munsters. 
So this group of nice, happy people seizes Sam after they realize she's a virgin. And Sam wakes up to find herself captive with Donica's disgruntled husband, Samuel, played by Jerry O'Connell, who is also um, Romaine's actual real-life husband. Um, Jerry O'Connell made his debut in 1986 in an adaption of Stephen King's Stand By Me and went on to do other horror-related work, including Scream 2, Piranha 3D, Rod Serling's Night Visions, Eastwick, and even an episode of Charles in Charge. So Samuel explains that his wife's coven is uh, planning to summon a demon known as Baphomet, but needs a virgin's womb to do so. Sam also reveals to Samuel, uh, also did no one proofread the fucking script for redundancies with Sam and Samuel? Um, Sam accidentally reveals that she's a virgin. Samuel says that he can save them both by taking her virginity, what a nice guy, and trust to sexually assault her. Sam kicks his ass and Samuel pulls a gun, but accidentally shoots himself. And, uh, you know, it's just great. Beautiful karma, truly. Yeah. Yeah. So Sam flees the Neumeyer house, runs down the street to another mansion. And there's a uh, another babysitter uh, named Kristen. However, after watching a child die from a poisoned drink that Kristen gives to Sam, Sam quickly deduces that Kristen is just another member of the coven. Uh, fleeing upstairs, Sam encounters Kristen's sister, Michelle, who attacks Sam with a strap-on dildo, drill, a.k.a. drildo. Thank you, Axis. You're welcome. And, uh, yeah, uh, Sam dodges the drildo attack, and Michelle inadvertently penetrates her sister before dying of electrocution on the writing, on the wiring behind the opposite wall. Sam hears cries for help from a, be- from a nearby bedroom and enters to find Judy Ross, played by Roby Modine, from the Happy Death Day series, and she's hugged head to a bed. This is the daughter of Donica, the coven leader. Donica had originally intended her daughter to be the coven's virginal sacrifice, but after discovering that Judy had sex to avoid this fate, Donica, you know, ordered Judy be killed. Sam frees Judy and calls 911, but the call redirects to the coven, forcing the girls to flee again. Um, there's some more stuff in the middle we can skip right over, but Danica... Uh, <laughs> temporarily loses control of the coven eventually the coven captures the pair and sam and judy awaken tied to an altar in donica's backyard surrounded by the coven donica uses a spell to drown gypsy and retakes leadership of the coven however as gypsy dies she breaks the protective salt circle that was laid to ensure the ritual went smoothly Uh, the coven begins summoning and sam is impregnated by baphomet uh, Sam manages to break free from her bonds and points a blade toward her womb and demands Judy be released. Instead, Donica opts to cut Judy's throat. <laughs> ah, true mother-daughter right. bond right there. Right. The sight sends Sam into labor. Um, and uh, to calm herself, Sam repeats a mantra, two fuzzy bunnies, because that's what you do instead of Lamas. Two fuzzy bunnies. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Um, Sam then gives birth to, you fucking guessed it, to Fuzzy Bunnies, and Sam suddenly finds the garden empty, and a demon named Samaziel manifests, manifests in front of Sam in the guise of a little girl played by Maya Perkins in her first screen role. Samaziel explains that it ranks higher as a demon than Baphomet amongst Hell's legions and is insulted that the coven did not worship her instead. Furthermore, since the salt circle had been disturbed by the gypsies by gypsy's death, Samaziel was able to enter and wreak havoc on the ritual. 
Sam confuses Samaziel into sort of sparing the virgin pizza delivery woman as Sam flees with the, uh, you know, the Sam's Club, uh, which is probably the weirdest and hokiest thing I've ever seen. Uh, the yard once again becomes populated with the coven. Donica loses her head. Sam Aziel is overjoyed at the Gorn chaos. And then the rest of the coven chokes to death and one of the bunnies dies. Uh, you know. And then uh, Sam picks up the other bunny and jets away on her Vespa as Sam Aziel waves bye-bye. Um, Sam returns to the pizzeria, quits, and says she's going to Australia with her new bunny, Judy Jr. Um, A moving tribute so. we can all desire. How, a little less moving now because in the interim between watching the film uh, this the first time and recording this, I watched the episode of Seinfeld in which Kramer adopts a uh, fighting rooster and names it Jerry Seinfeld. Sorry, little Jerry Seinfeld. So... <laughs> It's lost some of the emotional mo- like impact for me, but I digress. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, it's like Judy died for us. We'll name a bunny after her. <laughs> okay. Um, directed by Chelsea Stardust Peters. I'd like it to to be known that IMDb and Wikipedia were not the best sources of information for this film or its director. That honor goes to Joe from On The Set, a YouTube channel. We'll put the link in the comments. We already liked and subscribed, and you should too. Uh, Joe, I don't know your last name. If you would if you would be so kind as to, uh, you know, DM me or email me uh, at the Late Night Pod, uh, we'll be certain to, uh, you know, give, us, give everyone your last name too, if, if you prefer. If you prefer not to, that's totally fine too. Anonymity's fine with us. Um... So the daughter of two artists who love Halloween, Miss Stardust grew up in the Midwest, attended Ohio University's School of Film. And this director has a storied career working with Bloomhouse on a lot of their work and with Judd Apatow. Um, certainly not one of the worst horror films I've ever seen. I feel like Satanic Panic was a film that was hit really, 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 really fucking hard by the pandemic and bad yeah. weather. If I understand everything that I've seen and heard from Stardust and from other people who worked on the film correctly, bad weather and and the pandemic, just the worst. It was November when they wrapped, apparently. Oh, jeez, uh, yeah. And, you know, that's, that credit goes to onset. That, that's when, where I got that information. Yeah, it also, like, the funny thing about this one is I feel like there's this certain niche for low to mid-budget horror films where they mm-hmm. can kind of count on like they try to give themselves the charm of what will later become a cult film without mm. cultivating the cult film status ahead of time so not to say i did not enjoy this i found this a perfectly enjoyable movie but it's the kind of thing that like i think had that that feel to it despite be or the intention there despite being a new movie is that just me yes i think that that's i think that you're absolutely correct it's not just you i think that um you know even when blockbuster was still open and i would go Mm -hmm. into it and many many moons ago um there were these times where um yeah you just you know there would always be these walls where you would end up with these movies where you, it was like playing Russian roulette where they, they, they weren't, there were directed DVD releases. Um, you didn't know what you were really going home with. You know, shrooms is one I think I can be like, I'm vaguely recalling. 
you know um pro-life by john carpenter was another one where that was the toronto film festival years ago um pro-life was like a fucking masterpiece shrooms wasn't really like groundbreaking but it wasn't terrible either it was still a decent story um you know i won't spoil those because you know we're spoiling everything else but those were decent stories like pro-life is definitely a film where that's a lot more fucking relevant now um it, it definitely became definitely became a much more relevant movie in the last couple of years but that, those were those were cult films at the time people weren't watching them regularly the washingtonians um actually almost everything out of the toronto film festival was something where unless you're a hardcore a hardcore horror fan you you weren't watching that shit like you you know most people were when when i was in my i'd say my mid-20s you know i you know when room org was like you know, you know, rising to popularity, and I think Gary Pullen and Justin Erickson were still doing the covers. Um, that was an interesting era because we it was it was a golden age of of horror films, and what we had was just this new you know May that we watched on the show it was also one of those, mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely. where they weren't there weren't things that got mad press, all right, when they when they released, but they they managed to hang in there. They were interesting to you know to look at and um i think for better or worse they were somewhat entertaining i mean yeah, it was definitely yeah. better than fucking staring at the wall right i mean like um, it's a groundbreaking filmmaking no but it's perfectly no. charming like it's a, a very enjoyable way to pass the time it's referential i think there's a lot of integrity to like the understanding of the form and what yeah. they're doing and all of that and it's just a fun time absolutely and i think that's actually one thing that um stardust also really emphasized um mm-hmm. it was that the cast worked really well together yes. and if they yeah. hadn't this project would not have worked and i agree with that i think that the cast if you look at the cast um they're all very talented they all have you know they all have a lot of, you know, all, except for the youngest there. Um, the rest of them had a ridiculous amount of experience. Yes. You know, I don't know how much yeah. the fucking bunnies worked. I didn't get names, but I'm sure the bunnies worked as well. Like, you know, yeah. If yeah, Axis no, has proven anything credits. to us, I'm sure there were there were handlers for the bunnies, and I'm sure they had I know. another I films, also, you know? I did not find the bunnies credits for this one. I'm terribly sorry. A real shame after I managed to find cockroach credits last month, but... Uh... Yeah. I'll take the well, take the bullet for that one. <laughs> that's just it, right? Like there wasn't a lot of information on this yeah, film, absolutely. and I would say that that's the other thing was poor fucking marketing. And I don't, I'm not yes. going to point fingers, but you know, if you know who produced the film, I can fucking guess who's who who is the poor fucking marketer. I'm not going to name any names, but you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it seems um, like too because the the project changed hands a few times. Like the original production yeah. announcement came back in 2015, and then it got tossed around to different producers, different director. Like I think it suffered as well from the lack of continuity in production. And then by the time it got handed yeah. off to somebody else, it did not get the fanfare it the should have to right to get yeah. a really notable or profitable release mm. which is a bummer because like again perfectly charming movie and like right. it could have been yeah. you know a, a fun summer flick it, kind of deal <laughs> i mean it really wasn't i mean it wasn't meant to be and that was the other thing and i'll probably say this throughout the, this particular episode but it was a film that didn't take itself too seriously yeah 
And it didn't need to be because that's the comedy horror genre. I mean, comedy horror is normal. That's just its nature. It's not meant to right. be Right. It's, it's tongue-in-cheek. Be... <laughs> All right. Yeah. I was like, hey, here's a fucking show. You don't like it? <laughs> There's mm-hmm. a thousand other shows. Go watch those instead, you know? Yeah, it's um, especially interesting, too, pairing this one with The Babysitter, where you have something that's similarly uh, quirky but made with a Netflix budget. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's yep. uh, a real um, nice comparison in, in you know, mm-hmm. indie budgeting. versus, yeah, just mm-hmm. absolutely just budgeting. And, yep. I mean, clearly they did a lot. And if, speaking of funny things with the freaking release of this movie... The most amusing fact I found in all of my research was that when the movie was released on DVD, um, Walmart uh, stocked it and apparently removed the word yeah. satanic from all of the slipcover mm-hmm. packaging of all of their DVDs, which, um, what a choice, it's Walmart. Terrible. <laughs> really, I'm sure really helped with name recognition with the movie and, oh yeah, because like, it's just so goddamn goofy. Like, oh, you don't sell devil masks at Halloween? Like, yes, you do. Yes, you yeah. do. It's the word satanic is you're worried you're going to get blacklisted by moms everywhere. Like, they're still going to come there for the bargains, babe. You're Walmart. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. You'll be and fine. it's kind of crazy. Because if Sam Walton was alive, I don't think it happened anymore. So, no. Um, <sighs> yeah. Um, <laughs> so, being that the term satanic panic was an actual crisis that mm-hmm. occurred in the 80s, based on the controversy mm-hmm. generated largely by the novel Michelle Remembers... Uh, authored by Lawrence Pastor and Michelle Smith, I felt like the title was kind of lazy. Yeah. Um, I also feel like... It didn't connect um, a ton to the plot. Correct. Like, it didn't have a lot of specificity. Like, yeah. Right. Like, you know, something about... Some, something with a reference to Baphomet or something... Mm-hmm. Some, you or know, even the, the Fuzzy is, Bunnies. Not... Like, it's pizza delivery, anything. Right. <laughs> I, and so I kind of wonder what the fuck happened because... Um, you know, if, if there's one thing Grady Hendrix is kind of known for, it's quality product. Yeah. And so I kind of, I look at it and I think, well, you know, Dean Koontz and Stephen King have also gone through this as well, where they were not pleased with the final product of their of their film adaption. But they were, you know, they were happy to accept the money for mm-hmm. the film sure. adaption, right? <laughs> it was like, yeah, money, thank you. Mm-hmm. Amen. Um, yeah, I mean, the shit's it, been done already. Cut me that check, baby. <laughs> right. I've, I've, you know, it's, it's hilarious because if you look at like, you know, people who go in it, these days, it's like people are actors swearing to Christ up and down that they're never going to work for Disney, you know, or they're furious <laughs> with Netflix. Right. But it's like, uh-huh. they need a new, they need a new Marvel actor. And it's just like, I'll call my agent. <laughs> right. I mean, they, they need the entire world to fill Marvel's roster at this point. And like, exactly. That's a big fucking world. Yeah, it's so, a, yeah. Right. And it's about how many, like, sometimes it really is just who cuts the biggest check and like that's not a critique because you know maybe you take that Amazon money or that Disney money or that Netflix money and you go and donate a big chunk I don't know what the fuck you're gonna do with that like it's not a moral judgment I have certainly taken paychecks I'm not proud of but like (laughs) you know you do you (laughs) right so I don't think it's I don't think it's bad I just think that when I look at it for Grady Hendrick's piece I mean, this is not my best friend's exorcism, and this is certainly not Tales of the White Street Society. Like, if if you if you're a director and you're fucking listening, let me do you a big favor. If you have the money, pay Grady Hendrix to do Tales of the White Street Society. All right. Like, if you're somebody who has any contacts with BBC, 
or anything like that, go into like a major British network and do Tales of the White Street Society and you will probably dunk on Netflix because <laughs> Tales of the White Street Society is so... The, the protagonist is such a bastard, right? And 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 so eloquent at the same time mm-hmm. that I love him. He's like, it's 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 every bit of Bill Murray that I've ever hated in Ghostbusters, <laughs> and he works as a complete English oh, scoundrel. Uh-huh. I love him. Yeah. He's horrible. Yeah. Got you. And, and he's so he's so racist, sexist, bigoted, terrible. He's just terrible across the board. He's just a terrible person, and I'm just like, I've never, I've never gotten to the end of the the Tales of the White Street Society. But if you don't own it, go read as much of it as you can. It's fucking amazing. It's the way stories. If you if you want to get into comedy horror and you want to write, that shit you gotta read. You need to know Grady Hendrix. If you don't need know Grady Hendrix yet, that's like Laird Barron or Simon Stronsis or Thomas Legati. You gotta fucking know who Grady Hendrix is. That's that's like that's an amazing writer. Yeah. Um, yeah. I want to flash back to the t- you were talking about the titling too, just for a second, because yeah. Satanic Panic. I, I don't. I didn't want to dive into it actually in this episode because it's <laughs> the actual Satanic Panic was again so far removed from anything that happened in this movie that I don't think it's actually relevant to our conversations. However, no. just as a you know PSA, if anyone is less than familiar with what happened in the actual original real satanic panic that happened in the 1980s, I highly, highly recommend researching it. It is a masterclass in understanding how mass hysteria can move through contemporary society and fuck up a lot of innocent people's lives, and it also happens to be very relevant to a lot of social issues that are happening right now and no i don't just mean the stranger things release (laughs) go ahead and do your homework because everyone should know (laughs) yeah absolutely agree i'm not going to give it away either um Mm -hmm. we will definitely save that for an episode in the future yeah i will say um yeah, while you're there, you might look up reality rewriting and Mandela effect. Mm-hmm. Two other things to go down the rabbit hole of. Um, my final thought is that Buffy the Vampire Slayers and the Caulfield would have been my first casting choice for the film. Uh, somewhere in there. Death by Bunnies <laughs> would have made a much stronger impact on horror audiences, certainly Buffy horror fans. Um, in case anybody thinks that that's irrelevant, the executive editor of Rimwork Magazine is a Buffy fan, and Emily Newsbaum of The New Yorker is a Buffy fan. Uh, I am a fucking Buffy fan. Yeah, I don't think the and... list of Buffy fans is small. <laughs> no. No. Even if it's even if its creator is incredibly mm-hmm. fucking problematic, um, I would just like to say... I think that not casting Emma Caulfield in this was a big fucking mistake. So for those who don't know, actress Emma Caulfield played a vengeance demon named Anyanka in the 90s TV show Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Anyanka was transformed into a human for the majority of the show and took the name Anya Jenkins. And the former demon was creeped out by, you guessed it, bunnies, insisting that they had a sinister agenda. And it would have felt very well with Satanic Panic's ending. And it would have made a lot more sense. It would have been much more meta in the horror world. Yeah. Um, so I felt that that was actually a big miss. Um, yeah, I think that could have tied it in, too. Because, like, the, the Fluffy Bunnies connection was... I would have made phone calls because weak. it couldn't have been that hard to get her. 
No, yeah, and I also, with the ending and the including of Sam Aziel or whatever, yeah. I, I, they seem to, yeah, they, I, I did a little bit of research because I was like, is there any basis in, you know, good old, you know, if you're looking back at yield Christian lore, is there any uh-huh. evidence for any of these demons aside from Baphomet? Like, Baphomet's a name we know. <laughs> Samziel appears nowhere, not mentioned anywhere else. And um, the closest name that I found uh, was Samyaza, who was a fallen uh-huh. angel of apocryphal Abrahamic traditions. And uh, they were known for leading a band of angels known as the Watchers to rebel against heaven because they were simply too horny for mortal women. Which um does not sound like the uh, Samziel in this movie. So, an original creation, methinks. I mean, because more interesting in the form of the child. And, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah more interesting in childlike things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I'm thinking yeah. it's unrelated. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm hoping, hoping. Hoping that's true. Yeah. yeah. Um. <laughs> yeah. So that aside. Um, actually, Baphomet, a lot of these names come from different types of propaganda. Mm-hmm. Baphomet is actually a misnomer for um, what was considered to be a, a demon pagan god back then. Uh, and its name was Mahomet or Muhammad. Mm-hmm. And so it, Baphomet is actually a misnomer for Muhammad. It was Islamophobia um, way back when. Um, hilarious. <laughs> uh, one of those things where, you know... People, people don't even sit and take the time to to appreciate the intricacies of the satanic church and, and how much trouble it goes to to make you all realize, you know, how ridiculous certain aspects of faith are, and especially um, when we're talking about semantics and names. Um, but yeah, um, Baphomet is, is rooted in Islamophobia. Or at least as far as my readings have gone over the years. Yeah, I mean, uh, that does not seem like a, a stretch. <laughs> Seems like a predictable turn was. of events. <laughs> Shall we talk about the babysitter? <laughs> the babysitter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what did you think? Oh, delightful. I mean, this one clearly had uh, the budget. It had the cameras. It had the, the capacity to bring in the... Um, the YouTube names. Oh yeah, before we entirely move on, it, it, this whole month for us has been heavy with internet famous folks because it is unfortunately mm. impossible to miss King Bach and Bella Thorne and the babysitter, but Lele Ponza's bestie and charitably mm. mediocre comedy sketches, Hannah Stocking, totally slipped under my radar as one of the Drildo sisters mm. in Satanic Panic. Never put it together until after I watched them. But yeah, plenty of uh, 2010s internet names. <laughs> yeah, a, a grand old time. It's, it, Combining the delights of uh, childhood bullying and uh, <laughs> pacts with the devil and horny high school stereotype characters into one bloody gore fest of a delight. <laughs> yeah. What I like about this film is that it was unpredictable to yes. some extent. And there's a sequel to it and it has some really amazing twists as well yeah yeah and i think it's a feat to be unpredictable in something that relies so much on archetypes that they they really leaned into character archetypes to then subvert them which is something i always appreciate Mm -hmm. and i and i couldn't believe when i saw the sequel how the archetypes had shifted in such a perfect way um yeah so uh, directed by Mick G, a.k.a. Joseph McGinty Nickel, 
a bunch, you know, in case you don't know who he is, he directed a bunch of corn music videos, a bunch of music videos, um, like The Offsprings, um, Pretty Fly for a White Guy, and a Gap Khaki commercial. Uh, the Babysitter was purchased by Netflix from New Line Cinema, a.k.a. The House That Fred Built, and if you ask me, they should have held on to it. <laughs> um, all we have on this one is the box office, and that's a little over $400,000, written by the same gentleman who also wrote another incredibly underrated horror gem, Un- Underwater with Kristen Stewart. It's yes, I said that. Kristen Stewart, which yeah. we'll get to later. <laughs> I know the difference between the films on this resume are yeah, jaw-dropping. I talked about but it in the watch along, but I just can't believe names. it. Yes, it's yes. an insane amount of names and experience that put these together on a lower budget. Um, the film starts with Cole, played by Judah Lewis, and he's a young man. We're a hundred percent sure what his age. We're, we're not a hundred percent sure what his age is, but he's unsure of himself and has some bullies led by a young gentleman named Jeremy, played by Miles J. Harvey. Um, Aside from Harvey's acting, which was amazing, I really dug one element, which I'd like to mention again, uh, the wardrobe on set for Miles J. Harvey. Uh, The blue bandana (laughs) really felt like a callback to Yafet Kodo's Parker in the 1974 blockbuster Alien, directed by Ridley Scott. Um, I really loved that. And I also loved, I really loved his acting, probably more than most of the cast, for a couple of his twists and turns, particularly one moment involving an egg, which I won't spoil. <laughs> um, this is probably my, yeah, people suck moment. Um, so Cole's bullies, Cole's bullies are scared off by his gorgeous babysitter, B, played by Samara Weaving, who is one of Cole's only real friends. And the other is Melanie, played by Emily Allen Lind, uh, who we all know from Dr. Sleep by now. Um, B tells Cole, tomorrow night, you, me, party. Uh, Cole has a great time with B. They dance, they sing, they talk all about their ultimate team to survive in a spaceship. Then Cole goes to bed and hears that B's had some friends over. Um, creeping onto the stairs, Cole observes what look like, I want to say, either high school seniors or college students. The lineup is Hannah Mae Lee as Sonia, Andrew Batchelor as John, Robbie Amell as Max, gonna guess his last name was either Bateman or Stifler, Bella Thorne as Allison, and Doug Haley as Samuel. But you don't need to worry about Sam, because it turns out B's leading a devil-worshipping cult, and Sam gets two daggers in his head after he wins a round of Spin the Bottle. Uh, Cole battles the cult to survive while learning that the cult needs his blood. Uh, the blood of the innocent, to be exact, and in order for and that's in order for the cults dreamed uh, for their dreams to come true. Um, you know, whatever happened to hard work? You know, um, the film turns into a cute mashup of Home Alone and The Running Man for Cole's blood, but Cole manages to defeat everyone, including Melanie's dad, who not even a part of the cult uh, was just a major tool, <laughs> and Cole drove Mel's dad's 1972 Chevy Cheville. Into the li- into his living room where he also hit B, while B lays crushed under the car. Cole cries and tells B he loved her and that she was his best friend before leaving the house. Later on, we see a firefighter surveying what's left of Cole's house and gets taken out by B, which is why we have a sequel to this film and I'm very enthusiastic about it. It's called The Babysitter uh, Killer Queen, and we'll get to that too at some point. So, um, yeah. 
This one's jam-packed start to finish. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, for me, I think the only thing that was missing was because Samara Weaving, you pointed it out during the, during the, um, watch along. Yeah. Samara Weaving is, is the niece of Hugo Weaving. Uh, for those of you who don't know, that's Agent Smith from the Matrix. But then I realized he was also King Elrond in Lord of the Rings. Yeah, that's my reference like, point. <laughs> right. And I was like, now it's dwarves versus elves. Yara, I'd be like, fuck this shit. All right, bigger people, you want to go? And yep, I mean, clearly absolutely. The, the dwarves, I'll take out your fucking one, shins. <laughs> right. One more time. And that was it. Like, I'm watching it, and I was like, you know, when I watch this, this is the dwarves winning. This is the dwarves mm-hmm. literally fucking massacring the elves. These twiddly winks and shit just flew in, and they fucked shit up. And it's like, wow, man. It really worked well. <laughs> um, yeah, I like to think you could sit down and play this for Thor and Oak and Shield as a, as a nice little, like, revenge fantasy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So... Um, Again, it's a horror film that doesn't take itself too seriously while delivering some sort of message. I found that the, that, you know, there was, again, it was, it was a similar balance. It was, um, you know, beautiful people uh, (laughs) with, with storied careers um, and a lot of talent, um, you know, working to create a really good, you know, story it wasn't really the it wasn't the scariest thing on earth but there is always going to be that challenge to all horror comedies and that's where does the mm-hmm. horror and and the and the comedy begin and, and in that sense i actually felt that the one person who really stole the show was robbie amell as max and yes. i really did th- i he really was so saw. goddamn I mean, good <laughs> he was good i mean he was walking toxic masculinity with schizophrenia yes. but he was you know he was fucking good um yeah he, yeah he was really um he he couldn't really decide whether he wanted to kill cole or be his bigger brother, or both, and so... I know, it was a really um, fun fusion of, like, all of the worst parts of toxic masculinity, with some of the, like, really yes. nice, positive aspects of masculinity, where, like, he shows up, and he's like, he's like, well, yeah, I am gonna absolutely fucking wreck you, but we'll do it respectfully, so you can die as a man, son. <laughs> right, and you're just, like, looking at him, and it's like... It's like, you grew up watching a lot of Teddy Roosevelt and fucking David Crockett, didn't you? Like, this is, you're kind of like looking at him going, Mm -hmm. I don't think you realize something. Mm -hmm. Those guys weren't that cool. Yeah, yeah. Teddy Uh, Roosevelt was typically the villain, babe. (laughs) Oh, I mean, you don't have to tell me. I remember the first time my mom took me out to see Roosevelt's summer home out in Long Island. Oh, God. And we walked in and How many I remember, dead things? <laughs> oh my god, so many dead things. So many dead things. I never seen an umbrella stand that was also an elephant foot before oh, yeah. in my entire oh, life. Oh yeah. And I looked at my mother and I was like, this guy created the national parks. And my mom was like, He created the national parks to have a place where he could go kill more things. <laughs> created the national parks to put regulations to make sure that nobody beat his fucking record yeah. of killing shit. Because he was amazing. <laughs> like you're looking yep. around and you're like, dude, this is the predator's house. This wasn't this is like President Predator. And yeah, you're like, he killed, around, you're like, holy shit. Teddy Roosevelt killed so many things that the nation had to be protected from him (laughs) right and like you look at it and you go wow this guy 
was not the hero that I was expecting. Like, you walk in the house and, like, the house fucking speaks for itself. You're looking at all the, like, all the fucking trophies and death and you're like, holy shit. Yeah. Like, what are the fucking floors made of? Are the floorboards made of ivory, too? Yeah, is, probably. Like, is the fucking house? Like, he probably yeah. has ivory toothpicks for the hell of it. Single use. <laughs> toss them when you're done. <laughs> he was... Like, I wouldn't be surprised. Like, we laugh about it. But if you, like, walked around the rooms, it was mortifying to oh, see yeah. how many animal pieces, oh, yeah. and like, rugs, and everything else you were looking at. Like, and don't I, get me I'm wrong. I'm not even a member of PETA or right, like, or anything. I and I was, like, horrified. I appreciate a good piece of taxidermy. But, like, right. you know, ethically done with some conscience. Not uh, just slaughter right. as many creatures as you possibly can to fill a Thursday afternoon. <laughs> Right, and and I think that that's just it. Like you look at it, and you're like, this was a guy who was really, really, really obsessed with killing things. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Like so, he was the yeah. prime most dangerous game candidate. Like it would not surprise me at all if somebody finally digs up the expose on Teddy Roosevelt, you know, doing hobby manhunts. <laughs> I was thinking the same thing. Like, and you're like, and it's like, and this is where I keep the this is where I keep the deer, and this is where I keep the human skulls. You want to see right. these? And it's like oh shit right. mm-hmm. yeah he was the original tiktok bone guy but mm-hmm. more direct path <laughs> yeah. yeah um and so yeah. it's it's horrifying mm-hmm. but yeah he was um but yeah that that's max for all of you who watch like if you're like wondering what max is going to be like max is the whole reason why i watch it max is like it's like i really like you and that troubles me inside i know <laughs> Oh, like, I know. Like, you're a guilty pleasure. You're like when I like Stifler and American Pie. You make, <laughs> you make me take a second look at myself and go, I don't trust you, buddy. Well, it's shocking that you're I liked naughty. him too because I don't like characters like that. However, like he managed to still have some himbo energy despite being a homicidal maniac, which oh, endears yeah. me to him. Like really right. does. <laughs> <laughs> It, there was just, it's like, what's he going to do next? He kisses his forehead. He's I like, know, go for it. And you're like, what the fuck? All right, you got a head start, buddy, before I come at you. Let's go. <laughs> and the whole thing, also the whole thing about finding his dick was like, you know, oh, yeah. things where you're just like, you're just sitting there and you're just watching him talk and talk and talk. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it, again, it's just like Patrick Bateman, where it's like, you know, the fucking warning signs are pro- we're probably there in the classroom for years and we were just overlooking them. And it's like, oh, it, we, they weren't even overlooking the them. Office, they were saying, oh, here's what's going to qualify you for a football scholarship. Right. <laughs> it's not overlooked, it's celebrated. <laughs> right. I remember when I was younger, I, I took Psych 101 in college, and there was a moment where my psychology teacher, she was a very smart woman, said, she's like, how would you feel about a person who walks in, you know, and, and wants to kill people for a living and it's civilians? And everyone's like, no, I'm, we're not so good. You know, mm-hmm. We're not so okay with that. What about somebody who goes into a into a, uh, into a a draft office, sits down with the draft officer and says he wants to kill as many people for the United States as possible. Mm-hmm. And they have a drink to celebrate it, right? Mm-hmm. And then everybody goes, ha, 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 right? And it's like everybody starts to get uncomfy. That's what Max brings out in me. Max is like, hmm, <laughs> enter the anti-hero, you yeah. know? Yep, yep, <laughs> yep. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah, clear highlight of the movie. Like, no shade to anybody else. There are great, great actors all around, honestly. All right. No, but they, were, like, they were amazing, but they just, for whatever reason, they didn't hit this weird nerve that, that Robbie no, hit. You know? No, the, no, he the was... The Sonya character 
also didn't really get there. I wasn't, you know, I was expecting more from May on that, but yeah. whatever. I like Hannah Mae Lee. I don't think Sonya was given all the flowers she deserved to really make the role bloom. Like, I think she could have been given more. Um, and maybe she is in the sequel. I don't know. But, like, I feel like that one had potential that wasn't quite reached. Yeah, and then we have... Bella Thorne. Yeah. Also, I felt was being underused. I felt like this was not... I felt like, you know, for a woman who was a writer and everything else, I felt no. like this was not... No, Bella... Both... They used both Bella Thorne and King Bach, a good old Andrew Bachelor. They used both of them to deliver all the haha internet era quippy one attention-seeking one-liners. Yeah. Which um, left them without much character nuance. It was caricature yeah. based on their internet personas, which I get that's what they were cast for, but definitely did not let them to c compare to a character with more nuance and more interest, like like Max or like B. <laughs> all right. It it definitely made them feel a lot more flat by comparison. But I get that they were supposed to be the comedic foil for some of the other stuff that was happening. So. Whatever, but forgive me for not being overly charitable to King Bach in a serious uh, role. <laughs> I'm, I'm also, yeah. I mean, it's just, it was weird. It, it, the whole thing was, I love the film overall. Mm -hmm. I, I find the reasons why I love it kind of disturb me. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, even even the thing, the, the dynamic between the babysitter and the babysat uh -huh. is somewhat uncomfortable. Uh -huh. You're kind of like, we all have the hots for her. And we're all like, mm, and you know, even the you know the boy is smitten with her, and you're kind of like, mm. yeah. I mean, I get it, but like, you know, this was something where it was kind of like, well, I mean, it definitely ex it, ex it it explored a place where, you know, it's not like Big Mouth the cartoon hasn't gone there. It's not like we haven't all gone there. No, I mean, I think I think the distinction for me is that like, yeah, it as an adult watching it, there's some squick factor. For the yeah. child, totally makes sense. Like, yeah, like, I think a lot of right. kids have a crush on an older, young adult right. figure that they are around. Totally makes sense. The pro the part where it becomes more uncomfortable, and which I think helps to create B as a villain, is that she encourages those feelings rather than discourages right. them to use them to her own advantage, which right. creates this uncomfortable situation. There's a However, right, yeah. exactly. Yeah. But that's part of her laying the groundwork for her villain arc. Like, let me tell you, the one summer I volunteered, not even like as a not even a full camp counselor, and I was probably like 12, 13, and some six-year-old started writing me love notes with turtles on him, I oh. shut that shit down real quick. <laughs> like, right. when you are the older person in that position, it's a hard no. Right. No, 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 no. <laughs> Let's uh, put that right in reverse, back it out of the parking lot, down the road, preferably yeah. across county lines, and restart things. <laughs> So, um, if you like these films, I can recommend more horror films that mostly don't take themselves too seriously while delivering some sort of message. Shaun of the Dead, Wand of the Dead, One Cut of the Dead, Yoga Hosers, What We Do in the Shadows, Dark Shadows, and it goes on and on and on. Um, these films, they fit nicely into in most gaps. They're, they're very flexible. Yeah. They're, you know, they're, they're not, you know, big... You know, unlike some of the other stuff that we've watched where it really fits very specifically together, this stuff is fairly fucking flexible. Yeah, and they're so, good standalones. Like, this is like a throw yeah. it on in the background if you need something to watch kind of movie, and you're like, aha, right. good times. <laughs> yep. 
you know, Piranha 3D was another one. They're, you know, they're no-brainers. Right. You, know, you can just remove your brain and watch them. So. Yeah. Speaking of removing your brain, I did, uh, I had one tangent I want to go down because I always have one. My, at least one deep dive. Because I kept getting really caught on just the sheer amount of cranial trauma that happened in both of these movies between, uh, really both people, between uh, poor Samuel in um, The Babysitter and Danica in Satanic Panic, who got very much knifed in the head. Um, Samuel did end up very much more dead from that instance. But... It got me thinking about um, one of my favorite little historical instances, which is the case of Phineas Gage. And um, and I went back and was looking at it and realized that this story is both more horrifyingly, gut-wrenchingly gory and incredibly warped by history than I think most people realize. So just quick little dive down this uh, avenue because I love it so much. Um, so <laughs> the story of Phineas Gage starts... Back in 1823, our good buddy Phineas is born in New Hampshire. We know that he was literate and he was the oldest of five kids, and that's about all we know of him until age 25 because it was the 1800s and nobody thought to record the details of normal people's lives. So by 25, Phineas was a strapping young man, reportedly a well-built five foot six with an energetic personality and shrewd business acumen. He also had a penchant for physical labor and making things go boom, because in July of 1848, he got a job working on construction for the Hudson River Railroad near Cortland Town, New York. He was so good at it that he was promoted to blasting foreman by September. Now, he loved this and had such pride in his job, exploding things, <laughs> that he actually commissioned his own personal tamping iron to use in setting explosive charges. That is a huge iron rod that you use to to moosh down a hole to pack it with blasting powder. And that is what he was using on September 13th of 1848. They're in Vermont, they're uh, preparing the roadbed for the Rutland and Burlington Railroad south of Cavendish, Vermont, and Phineas Gage was setting a blast. So uh, bores a hole deep, deep, deep into this big outcrop of rock, fills it with blasting powder and a fuse, packs it with a bunch of presumably sand or clay to, you know, have a neutral layer, and then you just pack it in there with the tamping iron. Bang, 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 bang. However, like he has done this many times. This day, something went wrong. You know, perhaps. Well, all went according to plan. Yeah, perhaps it was a freak accident. Some people theorize that maybe he forgot the sand layer. I, I like to not victim blame, so I'll give him the benefit of the doubt here. Um, but around 4.30 p.m., uh, he's working on a blasting hole. He's prepping it. A uh, bunch of guys standing behind him distract him for a second. He looks over his right shoulder, and in doing so, inadvertently puts his head right in the path of the blasting hole, just as um, the iron sparked against the rock and ignited yep. the blasting powder, which shot his huge metal tamping iron directly out of the hole and through his head. So, th please understand, this is like a harpoon. This is a huge piece of metal. And it went up through, basically through there. his soft palate. No, it didn't. It did not. It oh. went through his soft palate, up behind his left eye socket, and right out the top of his cranium. It was a gunshot, so it shot all the way out. People were oh. actually confused for a bit at first because the exit wound on top of his skull 
looked smaller than it feasibly could be, it's because the bone, it went so fast that the bone hinged itself and the soft tissue pulled it back into space, like into the space that it left. <laughs> oh. yeah, by the way, if you're squeamish, just fast forward a bit because we're going to get so much worse real quick. So the historical records of the people looking at what happened next, they said that it was this thing shot so far, it landed about 80 feet away and was, I quote, smeared with blood and brain. Gage, meanwhile, he's thrown onto his back and he's writhing around for a minute. And everybody's like, well, he's a goner, obviously. Except within a few minutes, he starts talking and walking and um, sits back up in an ox cart until they, uh, as they cart him back to town to see a doctor because this guy seems fucking fine. <laughs> And everyone's like, no, no, hold on a minute. Hold on. Hey, <laughs> the fuck just happened? Right. Um, one possibly apocryphal record re- claims that Gage, while en route, was entering information into his time card for work and jotting down the crew's hours. We don't know. But what we do know is that about 30 minutes after his fateful accident of getting his head fucking obliterated by a pole... Um, he makes it back to, uh, back to town. He's sitting outside a hotel when the local physician, Edward H. Williams, rolls up and was greeted by Phineas Gage saying, and I quote, Doctor, here is business enough for you. (laughs) 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 This cocky bastard has his brain poking out the top of his head and he's like, hey, doc, I got some business for (laughs) you. The doctor... He's horrified, naturally. Um, (laughs) I feel so bad for the doctor. The doctor's account of this, again, I I quote, uh, Edward Williams says, And then the journal entry goes, and that was the day I started drinking. Yeah, fucking seriously. The actual account from Edward Williams reads, I first noticed the wound upon the head before I alighted from my carriage, the pulsations of the brain being very distinct. The top of the head appeared somewhat like an inverted funnel, as if some wedge-shaped body had passed below from upward. Mr. Gage, during the time I was examining this wound, was relating the matter in which he was injured to the bystanders. I did not believe Mr. Gage's statement at the time, but thought he was deceived. Mr. Gage persisted in saying the bar went through his head. Mr. G got up and vomited. The effort of vomit. No, hold the fucking phone because I continue. The effort of vomiting pressed out about half a teacup full of the brain through the exit hole at the top of his skull, which then fell upon the floor. <laughs> Homie puked so hard that he oozed more brain out his skull. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. I was kind of like, I was kind of expecting it to mm-hmm. come out at some point. Like when you have that kind of an exit wound, there's going to be mm-hmm. some goo. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Now, thankfully, so so Williams takes his initial care, uh, and thankfully there was another physician named John Martin Harlow who already knew Gage. They had come into in contact with each other before, and Harlow was unusually well versed in brain trauma, especially for a doctor in the 1800s. So he pretty quickly took over care, um, and. It's reported that Gage was conscious, but was hemorrhaging absolutely fucking wild. Bleeding like crazy. He was bleeding from the head. He was vomiting up blood. It was a nasty time. I fucking wonder why. 
Yeah, so <laughs> they they clean him up, um, remove a bunch of coagulated blood, a bunch of bone fragments, and then there's uh they've reported about an ounce or more of protruding brain poking out of the hole, which they just cut off and got rid of because you know why not? Um, <laughs> who fuck needs it? Yeah, who needed that? Yeah, no, 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 nobody needs that bit. Um, would like to note right here in the middle of this tale, um, Amelia Clark of Game of Thrones actually had two aneurysms, yes! and she said yes! that there are parts of her brain that are dead. Yes. And um, she says that she they she feels that they were the parts that helped her to find a, a, a worthwhile man. <laughs> oh, like, trust me, we'll get to personality. I wanted to high five like, at that moment. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, definitely look that up because it's an amazing story, and she does incredible charitable work to help with aneurysms and brain injury. Like, yep. amazing woman. I digress. So... <laughs> So they continue, they replace a few big chunks of bone, they kind of close it up with adhesive straps, but leave it partially open, quote, for drainage. Um, now, they keep working on Yum. him, keep an eye on him. Late that evening, uh, apparently Gage said that he, quote, does not care to see his friends as he shall be at work in a few days. So, really shocking, um turn of events here he unsurprisingly has a difficult time recovering from this because may i refer you to the big fucking hole in his head and teacup full of uh brain matter that was removed so <laughs> so things go back and forth um his mother and his uncle are summoned from new hampshire 30 miles away um at first he didn't he recognized them at first then a couple days later it was said that he forgot his friends and couldn't recognize people then he came back by the fourth day it goes back and forth things seem good it, until about 12 days later when he becomes semi-comatose he's losing strength um mm. his eye is all fucked up and popping out of his head the brain is oozing back out the top. They can't keep it in mm. the hole. Um, they will not stop talking about how bad the smell of both his breath and his head are, um, which not surprising information here. Would make sense. Yeah. Uh, somewhere between acid reflux mm -hmm. and the smell of blood. When you're coughing up blood, that smell is putrid. Yeah. Yeah. Now let's... Um, <laughs> Let's buckle up again for some more gross shit as we head oh, back gets into. Oh yeah, it sure does. As we head back into Harlow's uh, medical notes. Now this is uh, this is uh, taken from from a report of uh, of his notes. It is said that Carl Harlow quote cut off the fungi which were sprouting out from the top of the brain and filling the opening. Now, fungi is a liberal term here. It was probably infected probably. tissue rather than like a mushroom growing out of there, but of course we appreciate the visual of a mu of mushroom yeah, more. Could, we, we, have, we don't know. Right, we don't know. Could, could have um, happened. It could have happened, <laughs> but probably infected happened. tissue. So, I continue. Um, he cut off all of the protruding brain stuff up top applies a uh, caustic so he slathers it with crystalline silver nitrate which was an antiseptic but also a caustic burning the brain matter wow. to uh okay yeah to prevent further issue but also you know caustic material right on the brain bold move my friend <laughs> 
Harlow killed him instantly. Oh, you'd think. Harlow continues. <laughs> With a scalpel, I laid open the and this is, is side note is the frontalis mm. muscle from the exit wound on top of his head and down to the top of his nose. So basically, slices open his face, and <laughs> quote. Immediately, there were discharged eight ounces of ill-conditioned pus with blood and excessively mm. fetid. Um, <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah, end quote there, because it's, uh, nastier. Um, but this is bad, but, um, it seems to improve his condition, because that's day 12. By day 24, he's walking by a month, he's walking up and down the stairs, walking around town, um, going around, chatting with people. He wants to go back to see his family in New Hampshire. Actually hung out outside too much without an overcoat and wearing thin boots and then got a chill and everybody was like, oh no, he has a fever. But he seems to be on the mend. So by November 25th, 10 weeks after his injury, he goes back home to his parents' house in Lebanon, New Hampshire. And um, he's like still uh, not too hot. He was described as quite feeble and thin, but he hangs out there. And by February, he's working around the farm, um, which seems absurd. And so physically he's left with, uh, he entirely loses vision in his left eye. He has ptosis, which means his eyelid sags down. He has a scar on his forehead um, and a big old, raised part of his bone on top of his head which you can't see because he they unearthed a photo of him years later pretty handsome guy honestly and very full head of hair which conveniently covers his big old bone egg on top of his head uh, <laughs> but he continues to have a really pretty successful life so after chilling at home for a little bit he was brought to Harvard Medical School to be shown off by Henry Jacob Bigelow, and we'll come back to him, but he uh, was prof the professor of surgery at Harvard Medical School. And so he examined him for a while. He took him to a meeting for the Boston Society of Medical Improvement, and Gage wasn't allowed to go back to his railroad job, but went after he went to Harvard, he went down to New York City and was kind of a living museum exhibit at Barnum's American Museum there, which is the same Barnum of Barnum and Bailey Circus, but not circus. So he was not a circus exhibit, but he sure was a museum exhibit. <laughs> now, he, Hashtag fucking wow, okay. Yeah, absolutely. He did some private touring around New Hampshire and Vermont, doing little one-off shows for people, but got kind of bored of this, mostly because he said he wasn't that interesting. Um, <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> then after that, he... Uh, not he worked at a stable for a little while in New Hampshire, but then was invited to Chile to work as a long-distance stagecoach driver, caring for horses and doing coach driving on the Valparaiso and Santiago route. And he said, "You know, one what? of those times you—it it was one of those rare times you would thank God there was no Skype video into yeah, your call." <laughs> yeah, and he was like, "You know." Okay, that sounds like a chill plan. So from 1852 to 1859, he hung out down in Chile as a stagecoach driver. <laughs> Who would have seen that one coming? Um, <laughs> I mean, the other thing is he might not have seen anything coming, depending True upon enough. what side of the fucking road they were exactly. on. Exactly. Yeah. You know, good on him for doing that job with no fucking depth perception, because Jesus, there are some mountainous regions there. <laughs> 
But so 1859, he begins to get infirm again, um, not doing too hot. So he heads to San Francisco, uh, where he recovers under the care of his mother and his sister. Uh, Unfortunately, in February of 1860, he begins to have epileptic seizures. He loses his job that he got that had been doing as a farmer. Um, And in May, on May 18th of 1860, he finally has um, too big of a seizure and dies. Sorry, dies on May 21st of 1860. And he was buried there. Um, Sad times, but, you know, he made it a long time. He survived 12 years. 12 years after having a hole in his head. Pass what would be the equivalent of a fucking bullet go out off the top of your head. Yeah, but like bigger than a bullet. (laughs) It would be like a mega bullet going through. You're right. I'm sorry. That's true. No, it's... And... You can see the pole. Um, the pole and now his skull are still on display at uh, at the at Harvard Medis- Medical School's Warren Anatomical Museum. Um, so, so the, he actually had his pole engraved after his accident. Um, oh, where? Yes. So the tamping iron bears a, an inscription that he had commissioned, which reads. This is the bar that was shot through the head of Mr. Phineas P. Gage at Cavendish, Vermont, September 14th, 1848. He fully recovered from the injury and deposited this bar in the Museum of the Medical College of Harvard University. Phineas P. Gage, Lebanon Grafton, Sci, uh, New Hampshire, um, January 6th, 1850. Inspirational stuff, really. Um, so this is all a wild ride. I want to get into where it gets even weirder and we get into the parts that have gotten really warped over time because (laughs) because a big part of the story is talking about his personality and possible changes that came to his personality with the brain damage and his case has been pointed to for generations now as the exemplar to talk about how the brain helps to determine our personality, if that can induce, and if messing with the brain can induce specific personality changes. And that's really tricky territory to talk about. Now, early observations are difficult. Most of them are coming from Harlow, who was the the brain specialist who worked on him and is one of the only people who knew him before his injury and after and was a medical specialist so he a lot of the uh the words came from him and he really encouraged this idea that post this injury Phineas's personality was totally changed. Um, He described him as really an efficient, as I quote, and the most efficient and capable foreman in their employ, according to his his, uh, railroad workers before the accident. But then afterwards, he's says that, quote, the equilibrium or balance, so to speak, between his intellectual faculties and animal propensities seems to have been destroyed. He is fitful, irreverent, indulging in times in in the grossest profanity, which was not previously his custom, manifesting but little deference for his fellows, impatient of restraint or advice when it conflicts with his desires, at times pertinaciously obstinate, 
yet capricious and vacillating, devising many plans of future operations which are no sooner arranged than they are abandoned in turn for others appearing more feasible. He keeps going and describes him as a child in his intellectual capacity, with animal passions of a strong man, and says that this is a total shift in his personality. However, here's a big fucking however. Harlow says that this is all from his notes, um, right, it says he wrote them down right after the accident. But he didn't publish them until 1868, after Gage had died, and his family had supplied Gage's skull, and he had become a bit of a medical celebrity for parading around with Gage. Meanwhile, we have uh, Professor Bigelow from the Harvard Medical School, where, uh, where Phineas Gage had gone after his injury, and uh, he was examined by Bigelow before Bigelow presented him anywhere, and Bigelow said Gage was great. <laughs> he said he said that he was in perfect shape, he was quite recovered in faculties of body and mind, um, and said with only inconsiderable disturbance of function. So he described him as, like, obviously physically impaired because of the injuries, but he said, and I quote, there was just, there was no difference to his personality. And again, Bigelow did not know him before the injury, but described him as a totally normal, normal nice, functional dude. And now I'm going to give you one big old guess as to which account of his personality was the one that uh, was taken and exaggerated upon in all of the popular culture accounts of this afterwards, which went so far as to start describing um, uh, Phineas Gage becoming a monster and abusing the wife and children, which he absolutely never had. (laughs) There became this obsession with how this changed his personality and how he went so far downhill and stuff when the evidence for this is shaky at best. And a big thing to consider in the vast difference between these two accounts is that you have Harlow on the one hand, who was saying that so much happened to the brain that his personality totally changed. Harlow was a huge proponent of phrenology, the total pseudoscience of looking at the brain and uh, looking at the, the skull and looking at the lumps on the skull and saying, well, this one says that you're uh, that you have these values or those values. Like, and he specifically was very invested in the idea that the parts of the head that were damaged in Phineas Gage should have damaged his veneration, benevolence, and companionship. Those parts of his brain, which... So, having these changes in Phineas Gage's personality would perfectly and conveniently validate all of his theories about phrenology. (laughs) Which, again, we now know is bullshit. Meanwhile, Bigelow from the Harvard Medical School his training also believed that phrenology was bullshit, so he was conditioned to not pay any attention to that and therefore saw no changes in Phineas Gage's personality. So that'll give you some some ideas right away that maybe these accounts of him being a total monster after his brain injury are not as reliable as one would think. Now, there is also an argument to be made for the fact that... um, his time as a coach driver in Chile may have been a large part of his recovery because there's this whole school of social recovery, the way that you can, through socialization, help to repattern your brain. And a big part of that kind of therapy is going through a lot of routine and ritual and 
that helps them to relearn um, th that sense of structure helps them to relearn social skills and personality so there is the idea that maintaining this exact same coach route day after day after day for several years could have been a huge foundational thing to help engage um, reform his personality and become a functioning person again which is great love that I did want to mention it however the evidence that his personality changed at all is shaky at best so so he's been treated as effectively a Rorschach inkblot test for what people want to see when it comes to the topic of brain trauma and personality changes but he's a fascinating historical figure seemed like a cool dude <laughs> Yeah. had a sense of humor about getting a fucking pole shot through his head. He staged a very nice photo of it. We'll I'll make sure we include it with uh, the, the uploads on social media so you can see it. But there's a very charming photo of him framed po pose holding the pole that shot through his head, which I think is perhaps the classiest thing you can do after, uh, after you have your personalized monogrammed tamping rod shot through your skull. Um, so cool guy, Phineas Gage. Shame that he's been so warped by history, but definitely look into it. And at the very least, for those with the stomach for it, look up the, uh, the recreations of what happened to his skull because the amount of fucking trauma the path the pole took through his head is genuinely hard to imagine that someone could survive <laughs> right but medical fascination and all of this to say circling back around much 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 later after my uh, long tangent it suddenly seems more plausible that Danica could have sat back up and gone to the fridge to get a snack after having a knife through the top of her skull. <laughs> right. Well. <laughs> <laughs> Can happen. Yeah, I I do confess that um, the the tie to the episode is small at best, but man, do I love the story. I mean, so I hope where, you'll all indulge it depends me. Depends on where in the brain it's penetrated. There's a scene in Hannibal where mm -hmm. Hannibal very quickly puts a boning knife. Oh yeah. Right into a gentleman's temple, but you know there was a much more realistic reaction, which was mm -hmm. the guy started to stutter. He couldn't see right. And he was beginning to, he had completely lost his ability to focus. Mm -hmm. And that was from a very small sliver of oh, yeah. the knife I would like to very much functions, clarify right? that um, people being fine after intense brain trauma is the exception to the rule. Right. <laughs> like, don't go stabbing anything into your brain going, oh, it'll be fine. You shouldn't like, even knock your head the wrong way. Actually, no, brain trauma is fucked up, man. Like, really, really dangerous. So, be very <laughs> careful with fish your tank, noggin. And if you hit that fish tank too hard, mm -hmm. bad shit tends to happen. Exactly that. Now, how so... the fish managed to live after having a pole ram through the fucking fish tank? Oh my god. There's yep. what we call divine providence. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Phineas Gage survived to have a short but very interesting life, I'm sure. I hope he enjoyed his time in Chile. Um... I mean, I think... <laughs> I think 12 years is about 12, you know, that's, that's several thousand miles expect. past the limit, you know? I yeah, think exactly that. Exactly that. And uh, honestly, I think he deserves it after all the goop that had right. to get taken out of his head. That was um, yeah. not a fun time. So good on him um, for getting some sunshine, some time on the coach. <laughs> yeah, I mean, those, those must have been interesting days, you know, riding the horse, you know, in Chile yeah. and just being... 
imagine, yeah, like, what a road I've taken, you know? (laughs) What did you do? I went down to the bottom of the earth and, uh, you know, I just (laughs) rode a horse. Yeah, yeah, you know, I thought I needed to get away from it all. So, uh, Chile. (laughs) Right. Yeah, yeah, so, you know, take care. Yeah, all this to say, take care of your brains, kids, and be safe out there. (laughs) Stay tuned for the Horn News with Amanda Hendley. Take it away, Amanda. Up until then, stay happy, bit listeners. Bye. Black Ink Fiction is looking for stories about how the ghosts of Atlantis trapped Nessie within the waters of Loch Ness for their latest anthology, The Loch Ness Monster versus the Ghosts in Atlantis. The submission window is open until October 15th, 2022, and the word count limit is between 3,000 and 8,000 words. For the full submission guidelines, visit https colon forward slash forward slash blackinkfiction.com forward slash vs. Ghost Orchid Press is now open for submission to Les Petites Mortes, an anthology of erotic horror inspired by fairy tales, mythology, and folklore. They're looking for retellings of these types of stories where sexuality, desire, and fantasies take a dark turn. Word count is 1,000 to 5,000 words, and the deadline to submit is August 30th, 2022. To read the full submission details, visit https colon forward slash forward slash ghostorchidpress.com forward slash submission dash calls. Inked in Grey and The Right Hive have an open submission call for their collaborative anthology titled Reclaiming Joy. This anthology is to bring attention to how communities and people have found ways to reclaim joy amidst struggles, tragedies, and oppression, for it's those moments that feel the light in the darkness. There is no limitation on how you incorporate the theme as long as it falls within the horror, sci-fi, and fantasy genres. Word count limit is 8,000 words, and the deadline to submit is August 30th, 2022. For more information, visit https colon forward slash forward slash inkedingray.com forward slash reclaiming dash joy dash a dash right hive dash anthology dash collaboration timber ghost press has an open submission call for fiction set in the old west for their along harrowed trails anthology they're looking for creepy and disturbing stories that embrace the old west aesthetic from around the 1800s to the 1900s Poetry and flash fiction word count is 1,000 words or less. Short fiction is 1,001 to 6,000 words. Deadline to submit is August 31st, 2022. For more information, visit www.timberghostpress.com forward slash along dash harrowed dash trails dot html. The Late Night, a horror podcast, is brought to you by Monero T. Lawrence. Find us at monaria.com and The Late Night Pod on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.